We're in Matthew chapter 8, as Brother James mentioned. If you would also like to place uh, your bulletin or something in Mark chapter 4, we want to uh, as well look at the same account there in Mark chapter 4, and we'll, we'll bounce back and forth because there are two different writings of the same account, and they both shed light on different perspectives and different areas as we deal with this portion of Scripture. Matthew chapter 8, Mark chapter 4. We'll start in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 23. It says, When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, once again, we bow our heads in reverence to you. We're here today, Lord, because you have drawn us to yourself. You have drawn us to this place. Not because we know everything, because we need to know more of who you are and who your son is. And Lord, I ask this morning that you would grant us grace and mercy. Lord, that we may read your word about your Son, the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and that because of that we may enter into your peace, enter into the rest that Christ himself offers. God, we just pray this morning that your Spirit would be upon us, that your Spirit would teach us those things which are hidden from the world in these passages. Lord, teach us about your Son, Jesus Christ, and show us for ourselves in this passage. But show us Christ. Lord, change us and conform us to the image of your Son. Lord, be glorified and be worshipped this morning. Lord, we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. If you'll notice in most of your Bibles... If there's a title that's been added to this particular passage, it usually has something to do with a calming storm, Jesus calming the storm. But if you read your bulletins this morning, there's something a little different, a different title that I chose. And I think by the end of the sermon, you'll understand why I chose a title such as Defeating the Storm. But we began by looking up uh, as to what has happened Leading up to verse 23, there's a, a great historical and biblical event here. Many of us are very familiar. The accounts are throughout all the synoptic gospels, yet there's not any emphasis placed upon it in the gospel of John. And so we see this great historical event. It's Jesus, of course, 
during his earthly ministry and during this time, Christ in fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture was healing many. That's what we see in the portions of Matthew leading up to these verses. Crowds coming, Jesus healing, Jesus meeting many physical needs. And with the start of chapter 8, we see Christ cleansing a leper. And then as we move throughout the text, we get to verse 5 and we see a centurion who asked Jesus in faith to heal his suffering servant. Now I want you to remember that. Because when most people preach this passage of Scripture, they do so, and I, and I don't want to belittle the fact that there are some miracles of Christ happening upon the sea, on, on the seas this day in this boat. That the winds and the seas would be calm. But some people read it and say, well Christ has healed these people. Now he's in faith healed this centurion servant and then we see yet another miracle. And it is a miracle. But there's something greater happening. And so I'll ask you, remember that circumstance where the centurion comes and he needs a, his servant to be healed and he desires those things but he comes and it says that Jesus heals this man because of the faith. I think this tells a lot about why this particular passage is uh, uh, this account is given to us because John tells us that there are many miracles that Jesus performed. There are many signs and wonders and they can't be contained in this book. So some were chosen not to say that what we see here is a, is a whole representation of everything that Jesus did because it's certainly not. He's certainly working today. So we recognize this. And then we see that uh, the servant is paralyzed, but by the word of God, uh, he's healed. And then there, there are these men who are demon oppressed, and of course the mother-in-law of Peter with a great fever, all of these people healed, all of these things accomplished by God in Christ as he fulfills his earthly ministry, working according to those prophetic proclamations that we see throughout the entire Old Testament. Consider this where it's written in Isaiah 53 as Jesus is healing these people during his ministry. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken smitten by God and afflicted. So immediately following these mighty works of divine miracle, our Savior reveals yet another mighty truth to all who will follow him. There's a message right before verse 23 talking about the cost of following Christ. A message that serving Christ is not for the lukewarm. It isn't for the tempor temporarily dedicated and because of the nature of this fickle and fragile life, Jesus is teaching his disciples that the message of the gospel is an urgent one. I need to bury my dead. He says, no, let the dead bury their own. This is a truth that the gospel message, the message of Jesus Christ is certainly urgent. There's nothing more important. The emphasis here is that we have no time. We don't have time for earthly things. We must leave. We must immediately take up our cross and follow Christ. He's saying, follow me, but not just follow me. He's saying, follow me now, immediately, speedily. The truth of Christ crucified is needed, and it's needed speedily. It's needed now. What a wonderful truth. The truth of the gospel. The truth that brings us to the text this morning. Beginning there with verse 23. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. 
I would submit to you that this first verse is a verse is a verse about obedience that leads to conformity. Not conformity that leads to obedience. That's legalism. But what we have here is obedience that leads to conformity. Jesus instructs the disciples to enter the boats and move to the other side of the sea. First of all, for us, the church, the bride of Christ, there's a great lesson to understand. Just with that very first verse, we call ourselves disciples. Disciples of the now risen and ascended Savior. Servants to the great Master then we should accept and do so gladly the marching orders of Christ. Those things which are given to us specifically in the New Testament that we go out and also make disciples, that we go out and proclaim the gospel, that we as men who have been gifted go out and preach the gospel. Christ crucified, nothing else. It's to say that when Jesus demands something, we do it. Notice that the account doesn't say that some asked why or some said we don't want to go or can we go later? But they go immediately. They do exactly as Jesus has commanded. When he demands something, we do it. Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But... His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The law for us is to that to keep the commands what Jesus has given us. And so in a spiritual sense, when Jesus says, let's go to the other side, let's get in the boat, we get in the boat and go. The problem is that with a lot of professing Christians today, we want to do things our way. We want to do things on our timetable. And unfortunately, this attitude is one of sin. We don't always see it that way, but the truth is that that's sinful. I mean, the greatest example that I can give is that most of you here are parents. How would you feel if your child said, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to go to church this morning. You're going to stay at home and make me breakfast, and then maybe we'll watch TV later. I mean, that's what we're doing when the Bible tells us to go out, when we're told to take up our cross, when we're told to forsake sin. But we've got other things to do. We've got better things to do. It's as if the church is telling Christ what to do. I mean, we see it every day, especially if you turn on TV and watch what claims to be Christian television. You see the church telling Christ what to do, this name it and claim it stuff. And what it is, is it's that sometimes we're guilty of trying to lead ourselves, or even worse, leading Christ. As if we can say some magical arrangement of words to provoke Christ to do something that he hasn't already foreordained and willed. It's amazing. If there was any other response to Jesus saying, get in the boat, this is what we would have. We would have men telling Christ what to do. We wouldn't have disciples, followers students of a teacher but we would have rebellious want to be masters it's very ironic that we would attempt to order christ to do something instead this first verse insists that we submit to the lordship of our savior jesus christ now when i say that i don't say that to to say that 
these men quite understood who Jesus was. Because as you'll see when we continue on, they really didn't know who Jesus was. And if they did, they certainly didn't act as if they did. You see, the truth of this is something that we can understand spiritually today is that Christ saves on His terms by His grace and in His time. This also means that if salvation truly is on His terms, then it will never be a salvation that leads to unrepentant sin. You can't have it God's way and your way. You can't get in the boat with Christ and go the direction of Satan. Go the direction of evil. Go the direction of wickedness. The truth of the grace of God in Christ isn't that Christ loves you where you're at, but that Christ loves you in spite of where you at, where you are at. And to say that, to say that He loves you in spite of where you are at, it's in order that He would bring you to where He is. People hate to hear that. People love to say, oh, God loves you where you're at. Christ loves you where you're at. It's partially true. He loves you now because He's ordained to do so before the foundations of the world. He loves you in spite of where you're at that He would draw you closer to Him. Because this is the truth. You are headed to hell. And if He loves you where you're at, going down the path that you love, then He's not turning you towards heaven. We must follow Christ. We must be turned. We must be diverted and rerouted from the paths of sin. He must draw you unto Himself. John chapter 12, verse 32 says, And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to Myself. Ephesians 1 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This first verse is teaching us to get on board, to follow Christ. Because if we follow anyone else, we'll be wandering through a wilderness. A wilderness that will devour us and so what we see here is that biblical obedience leads to conformity that in turn fosters transformation it's a work of the spirit of god alone by his revealing the son of god by the word of god to those who are the children of god and so then we move to verse 24 and behold there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves but jesus himself was asleep Two things described for us in verse 24. One, location, and two, the humanity of Christ. As far as location is concerned, we know that the boat was in the storm, and not just a small storm, but the Word of God says a great storm. A storm that was abnormally terrifying. These were men who were accustomed to being on boats. I've even heard some preachers preach that this was a sailboat, 
and that it had no paddles, but I, I don't buy into that because even if it was a sailboat, we know that people today that have sailboats have alternate power sources. These aren't dummies. But this storm was great. It was powerful. It was unlike most storms. And I'll submit to you because it's written in this Bible, it was unlike any other storm. It pales in comparison physically, truly, to any other storm, but spiritually, it speaks of a greater storm. It was terrifying. So we note that the boat was in a storm, and in the boat was a man, a man named Jesus. Now, we know that there are disciples on board, and we know who was on board but it doesn't matter could have been anybody the importance of the scripture is that christ was in the boat that jesus the messiah is in the boat now i said man and i say so intentionally but not in any way to separate or diminish christ from his deity for certainly he is truly god and truly man but the emphasis from the text is that jesus was weary or tired it's kind of what it says that we infer from it. We sometimes infer that Jesus was tired because in his humanity he did as man did. He suffered from the same things that man would suffer. And we have a Savior truly who lived fully in the flesh and was susceptible to the frailties of the flesh. So we're told that Jesus was sleeping. What we get from Mark is that there was a pillow. It's a little added information that we don't see here. But we see that Jesus is sleeping. And I, I, I tell you these things to keep both accounts on hand so that we can flip back and forth because some people will preach this message and leave out some key points. If you only read one, if you're not familiar with the full counsel of God, you'll miss some things. But he was susceptible to these frailties of the flesh. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 says, But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. If you'd like to turn just a few pages away to Matthew chapter 4. Another 11 verses. I'd like to read beginning with verse 1. Consider this, that Jesus is in the flesh. Fully God, fully man. Truly God, truly man. Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights he then became hungry a sign that he's human and the tempter came and said to him if you are the son of god command that these stones become bread but he answered and said it is written man shall not live by bread alone but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of god then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus replies again, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then a third temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus responds with, go, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Satan was attacking 
those fleshly human needs of Christ. Fully God, fully man. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives, for he assuredly does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to make he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted and that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. So we see the emphasis there on the humanity of Christ. Verse 24. And then verse 25, And they came to Him and awoke Him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now here's where I tell you that uh, some pastors, preachers, teachers forget the account in Mark. If you just preach from the point of Mark, you can turn there, chapter 4, you've got your place marker, hopefully. says in verse 38, Jesus himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care we are perishing? It's unfortunate that people would think this passage and they'll say, see, they didn't even go to Christ thinking that he could help. And I've heard them say that. But it's very interesting that when we read Matthew, he says that they said, save us. So they did come to Christ. Save us, Lord, we are perishing. They woke Jesus up saying this. It's wonderful that men in their time of need would go to Christ because He truly is Master. He truly is Lord. There's a truth, a truth claim to the fact that Jesus is the God-man placed in authority by the Father and it's shown to us here. Being very God, these men have appealed to no one less than the supreme and sovereign ruler. Though Jesus' response will tell us that they don't quite understand that. We know that even until after the resurrection, some didn't quite understand who Jesus was. They might have professed that they did, but it really wasn't so visible until after the resurrection for many. They said, save us, Lord, we are perishing. These men thought that they would certainly die. Notice the text doesn't say that they called out to another boat or that they prepared to swim or that they began to bail water or plug holes. Notice these men didn't think that they could somehow save themselves. That's how great the storm was. Time was running out, so it seemed. The hand of mere men could profit to no avail. Some great spiritual truths coming to light. These men were but a moment from death. And in verse 26, we see the response from Jesus. He asked, why were you afraid? Had these followers forgotten who they traveled with? 
Had they doubted the power and the authority of Jesus? Has fear overrun faith in the midst of the storm? Mark 4.39 says that Jesus rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace! Be still! And it ceased and was calm. The men of this boat were soon reminded that the weary, supposedly tired man Jesus was also the powerful, eternal Son of God, being Himself equal with the Father in power, authority, and attribute. And then this final response in verse 27, the men were amazed and said, what kind of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey Him? They didn't really understand who Jesus was. Now you guys know I don't ever have a sermon this short, so it can't end here. But it's amazing there. What kind of man is this? I'll tell you what kind of man it is. It's the God-man, Jesus Christ. Not only is He man, but He's truly God. And so, we see that this is truly an amazing story. A divinely powerful account of miraculous intent. The problem that I have is that I think for most Christians, we read this in order there and think, well, this is just another sign, another miracle, another wonder in order to prove that Jesus is God the Messiah. But on a greater note, I intend to proclaim the greater eternal truth of this passage and its application for us as New Testament saints, sons, children of God, true spiritual descendants of Abraham, is that there is a gospel presentation of who Christ is and who we are and how we must respond to the gospel. I'm not saying that this account can't serve as evidence as to who Jesus is. But I would say there's a greater greater spiritual connotation that tells us who we are and who we are in Christ and what Christ is able to do, what Christ will promise to do, and what this life will look like. Why did Jesus want to travel? Verse 22 and 23. On one hand, uh, verse 28 reveals a timely divine appointment with these demon-possessed men. And Jesus would heal them. He would cast the demons out. But there's a lesson for disciples in faith. This isn't just to tell you who Jesus is, but there's a lesson about what true faith looks like. What it really means to follow Christ. And there's also a a great lesson in the sovereignty of God. Jesus is traveling to do His work and His earthly ministry, but simultaneously His humanity will give way to His deity in order that men might understand who He is. The human Jesus on the boat, asleep, now rises as God to command the winds and the waves. This Messiah is fulfilling prophecies that would describe both His deity and His human human lineage. Think about this. If they remembered who they were on the boat with, they wouldn't have been afraid. If they knew that Jesus truly was the Son of God and the Messiah, they would know He wasn't going to drown in the sea that day. That's not what the Old Testament bears out. That doesn't sound like the sacrificial lamb I've heard of. 
but they didn't quite understand. The text is dealing with a salvation truth. Do you know who Jesus Christ is? And are you truly being discipled by him? Next, we get to the storm. Why was Jesus not worried? I believe the answer is simple. Just as I mentioned that Jesus knew the vulnerability of a boat in the storm, but he also knew the ability of God in him. Fully God, fully man. And in simpler terms, if Jesus knew that his hour had not yet come, then he knew no storm would hinder him. This is the beginning, I believe, of the gospel in this particular passage with verses 25 and 26. We see the mystery of the gospel unfold as we realize an eternal truth. The idea here isn't that men should be walking around looking to avoid a great storm. That wouldn't have helped if they hadn't gotten on the boat with Christ. Since the very fall of Adam, sin has set in motion that great spiritual storm. Its name is death. Its mode of destruction is separation from the almighty creator God. We can't avoid the storm. Life on earth and human flesh is certainly a storm. Now I've heard people say, I bet those disciples wish they were on a better boat. Bet they wish they had a larger ship or maybe that they had stayed out of the boat to avoid this time of trouble. But as I said, staying on dry land wouldn't help. We all know that storms make landfall, beloved. They certainly do. I'll tell you, a different vessel wouldn't help either. Your vessel is no greater than mine. Spiritually speaking, we all have weak vessels. Each earthly vessel is weak, whether there are turbulent seas or sinking sand. Your vessel is not able alone to make the journey. Each man-made attempt to cross the sea of life is certainly in vain. No, the question isn't, do I have the right vessel But the question of the gospel asks, does this weak vessel inside its hold carry an anchor? Your vessel is your body, the temple of this living God. Does it carry an anchor? And when I say that, I'm not saying that an anchor that holds a boat to the bottom of the sea. We're not talking about that type of an anchor. I'm saying, does this weak vessel have inside a leader, a captain, a savior, a Messiah, Jesus Christ? The one defined in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, where it says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain. Is your anchor, Jesus Christ, that hope that enters into that inner place behind the curtain? Does your vessel harbor that anchor see you can be in the storm with a big boat or small boat metal or wood fiberglass you can be going north south east or west but unless your vessel is filled with jesus christ by the power of the holy spirit of god 
then you'll not escape the storm. You won't weather the storm. You'll be swamped by the waves of sin and the world and your vessel will surely sink. A lot of people would even say as they preach this passage that Jesus left the crowds in order to get some time alone. Now, you may prove me wrong and show me the error of my ways, but as of yet, I haven't seen it. And I think there's evidence that this simply isn't true. I think there's a motive behind Jesus' going and his going to sleep. After all, the text says that he, do, he did go to sleep on the boat. Maybe he was tired. But I'll submit to you today that as I look into the passages, I'm quite sure from these supporting scriptures that Jesus didn't want to just be alone. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Matthew 14, 23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. Mark chapter 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I prayed. And he went to be alone. I don't think Jesus went down and slept on that boat because he wanted to be alone because when Jesus was alone, he was praying to God. Every account that I find of Jesus being alone is to pray, is to commune with God. See, when Jesus wanted truly to be alone, the disciples weren't really close. Think about it. He would come back and find them asleep. I believe the Bible bears record that when Jesus wanted to be alone, he was praying. With this understanding, I would present to you that Jesus has left the masses and the crowds this day, who in every account were comprised of both believers and unbelievers, but in order to teach his disciples a lesson centered in faith. That's the message of this story. Faith in Jesus Christ alone. Yes, the disciples did appeal saying save us, but they harbored some level of unbelief and Jesus reveals that to us. Why were you afraid? And then when you look in back again to Mark chapter 4, he says, why are you afraid? And here's the, the bit of information. This is why we take both passages together. Because we don't get this in Matthew alone. He says, do you still have no faith? There's why Jesus made the journey. I mean, yes, there were men that needed to be healed of their demon possession. But every life to Christ, those who were given to him were equally important. And so he calls his disciples to get on this boat to teach them a lesson of true faith. Not just coming to God like the crowds, coming to Christ like the crowds because they could get something. Jesus isn't a magician with one or two tricks and perform them for crowds and people come for that. No, Christ is one who we can come to for anything, for everything. He was traveling because those who called themselves disciples had some unbelief 
a weary faith and maybe in fact no faith at all. They said, save us. There was nowhere else to go. And then suddenly it seems that they remembered that this Jesus was on the boat. In what seemed to be their final moments, they alluded to the fact that they thought Jesus didn't even care. Do you not see that we're perishing? They ran to Jesus because they were afraid. And too many times, I think Christians run to the cross, run to the Savior, run to Jesus Christ out of fear of the world instead of running to our Savior in faith. You heard it right. Many professing disciples appeal to Jesus out of fear rather than faith. The attitude of the disciples tells us all that we need to know. The scriptures have many things to say about fear. There's an unhealthy fear and then there's a healthy profitable fear. First, I'll show you the unrighteous fear. Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear for I am with you. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Isaiah 41.13, for I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says, do not fear. I will help you. Proverbs 29 verse 25, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. John 14, 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. There's this idea that we shouldn't fear. But then on the other hand, there is this healthy fear. It's a fear of God. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Psalm 103, 13. And then of course, Psalm 31, 19, how abundant are the good things that you have stored up for those who fear you that you bestow in the sight of all on those who take refuge in you. The idea here is that the disciples were fearing the world instead of first fearing God, then they would have no fear. It's not just the disciples. We're guilty. Praise the Lord that in our weakness, He's provided us this ability to come before the throne of grace and pray. And why do we pray? Most of the time it's because we're fearing something that is temporal Rather than fearing God. How gracious is He to allow us to come before Him in prayer when we're wrongly fearing the things of the world? We have a righteous fear that should be the fear of the Lord. I sought the Lord and He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Psalm 34, 4. Jesus is teaching that in our weakness, faith overcomes. 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Our faith is the victory that overcomes the world. That is why this storm represents the spiritual storm of your life, because faith, that what Jesus said the disciples were lacking, is what would overcome. It's no wonder I named the message, Defeating the Storm. Jesus doesn't just calm the storm. He did in, in the literal sense when we read in Matthew chapter 8 and Mark chapter 4. But Jesus defeats the storm. If you call yourself a believer in Christ and you know that you have an eternal 
security in Christ alone, it's because you know that he has already defeated the storms that life has to offer. Who is that that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Beloved church, bride of Christ, bride of the risen Savior, there's a storm brewing, a spiritual storm. You've read Ephesians. Life is a spiritual storm. Is it problems with your children that are paramount? Problems in your marriage? Problems with your friends, your family, finances, your job? Those things are bad. But is there something worse? Is there a storm that is separating you from your walk with Christ? Your relationship with the living Savior? The one who was aboard this boat? I'm here today to tell you that if you belong to Jesus, He is on your boat. The Jesus who is able and willing to save is aboard your vessel. Are you truly regenerate? Then Christ is in the stern of your boat. He's not only able, but He's willing to save. He's willing to deliver you from the storms, the spiritual storms that this walk on earth has to offer. The great and wonderful thing is that the account today literally doesn't show that Jesus is aboard your boat spiritually always. Not just with one trip, but always. When the Holy Spirit of God inhabits the heart of man, it's completely, it's fully, it's permanently. Christ is always there. The, the greatest thing about this passage to me is that a lot of pastors look and say, they had to go wake Jesus up. But that's where the literal account of this passage stops and the spiritual picks up. Jesus isn't asleep on your boat. Jesus is waiting for you to exhaust all of these resources because you're sinning. You have faith in yourself and someone else, a life raft, your ability to overcome, and you're exhausting all of these resources thinking that you can do it because you're not living in faith, coming to the Christ. Jesus isn't waiting for you to wake Him up, but He is waiting for you to wake up and come to Him. Isn't that a miracle? Jesus isn't asleep. And I'll tell you, if you think that Jesus is asleep, I've got the solution. Jesus isn't going to go to sleep if you're walking beside Him. If you're talking with Him, if you're communing with Him, Jesus isn't going to fall asleep. He doesn't fall asleep in the middle of a conversation. He doesn't hear the cry of His sheep and hit the snooze button. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. I'm telling you, Jesus isn't asleep. But when we fail to exercise true faith in Christ, the only substitutionary atonement, the spotless, blemishless Lamb of God, we're sleeping. We've fallen asleep. We're dismissing ourselves from grace. 
The message of the gospel is sent forth in this particular passage telling you to wake up. Don't trust yourself. Don't even go through all your earthly resources. You can use those for something else. Jesus Christ is here today and he's ready to heal those spiritual storms in your life. It seems that it may be your final hour, but you have one resource and the thing is you won't waste it. Christ is your resource and he's an eternal resource. He'll never be used up. He'll never cease to exist. He'll never fall asleep. Ephesians 5 says, But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Christ is shining. We just need to open our eyes. Isn't it marvelous that for the disciples to reach the other side of the sea, to truly have saving faith, which they were lacking in the Messiah, we need a cross. I'm not speaking logistically, A-C-R-O-S-S. But we need not only a way across, but we need a way that was the cross, that is the cross. We need across the sea of life, and the only way to do it is to be near the cross of Calvary. When we attempt to cross life's seas on our own, we'll be met with overpowering waves, just like what we saw in this account. Waves of sin. The tides ebb and flows. Those flows, that which are causing the waves to come up and the ebbs being that which is drying it out and receding. The flows, they drown and swallow up. This is sin. And the ebbs, those things of the flesh that would spiritually dry us up. Without Christ, we're safe neither on dry land or on the sea. But there is a tide that's wonderful. Waves as big as the mountains. It's the crimson flow that comes from Emmanuel's veins. The blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Now there is a living river. There is a massive wave that brings forth salvation. A tempest whose waves don't devour man, but instead devours his iniquities. Causes him to be justified and righteous before God. The message that we see in Matthew chapter 8 is wonderful. It is a miracle of Jesus. But it's a reminder that we need faith and faith alone. Jesus doesn't need to be our last hope. Jesus needs to be our only hope. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come before you once again, we're so thankful. God, thankful that these vessels aren't steered by the flesh. 
But Lord, that you would take control as captain, as prophet, as priest and king. And take this weary, wicked, sinful vessel. Lord, and use it for your glory and for your honor. And in the midst of you being glorified and you being honored, Lord, that you would cause this ship to rest upon a solid rock. A solid rock, which is your son, Jesus Christ. A rock that will never be moved, will never be weathered, will never be chiseled away. A rock that stands eternal. And because of that, God, You've preserved me. You've preserved your children. Oh God, may we rest in this eternal truth that faith in your son Jesus Christ is all we need. It's the only saving faith. There's no no storm too powerful, no wave too large for our great God who's come to ransom us from sin. Lord, we just ask that you be glorified today. Lord, change our hearts, change our lives. Lord, cause us to lean heavily upon you and none upon our own selves. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.